Hello and welcome to Dit On, the podcast brought to you by the Royal Naval Association. I'm your host, Jenna Brodie, and today's episode is on Operation Dynamo, the evacuation from Dunkirk. Joining me for today's episode is Michael Pearce, and Mike has served with the Ministry of Defence for over 40 years and was on the staff of Britannia Royal Naval College in Dartmouth for 12 years. He's been closely involved with the Royal Navy throughout his career, and he's held management and planning roles within many different fields of the MOD activity and on numerous projects for the Royal Navy in London, Hampshire, and at the Naval Base in Devonport, in addition to BRNC. He's a Naval historian, and he has been a trustee of the Britannia Museum since its inception in 2008, and is a series editor for the Britannia Naval Histories of World War II, for which he has written several introductions, including Dunkirk. Operation Dynamo. So you are the perfect person for me to talk to today, Mike, about Op Dynamo. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Lovely to have you here today. So your particular area of expertise is 1860 to 1960. What is it about naval history and especially that period that's, um, you know, so interesting to you? And did you ever want to join the service? Well, that period of naval history for me is uh, really the bit I understand, because before 1860, it was wooden walls and sailing, and I'm not very good at that, so I didn't understand it too much, so it never appealed. But when we get to metal warships with uh, engines, then that starts to appeal. I suppose my interest in it started... Uh, as a child, really, my father was uh, fleet air arm. He did his war service in the fleet air arm, in the fighter carrier and uh, experimental flying. So I grew up with him talking about the service. I could never join it because I've uh, always had asthma, which is not a good thing. So it was always join the nearest thing I could, which was the Ministry uh, of Defence Navy Department as a civil servant, which I did. But the appeal has always been naval history. It's just something which started, as I say, in my childhood, if you like. I eventually uh, borrowed a book on the Battle of Jutland and thought, well, what on earth did these things look like? And then I found out. And then got bitten by the bug and I've never looked back since. I used to uh, used to be found lurking in odd corners of school. Instead of reading up textbooks, I used to be reading naval history books. And I was always getting told off for it. So there we go. That's how it started. Oh, amazing. That's so lovely. So you wrote the introduction to Dunkirk, Operation Dynamo, um, for the Britannia Naval Histories. And, you oh, you know, as I said, you've wrote several others. How did you find the experience for writing um, Operation Dynamo specifically? Well, Dynamo was different to the others that I've done. It was longer and it was very much a bird's eye view. Um, it was brought home to me when I was writing the hectic breakneck pace that everything had to be done and that everything was done just in those nine days how almost by accident really everybody worked together and it comes out far more I think in any, than in any of the other intros that I've done that it was just that hectic pace that um, everybody had to buckle down and do. How long did it take to put the book together? Um, well, to write the intro, I was about uh, 
not that I sat down and wrote it without pause, but I suppose it was about a month's writing on and off. Mm. But putting the book together, of course, it was fortunately it's down to our publisher, so he does all the technical bits of that. Mm. Um, we got the forward written by Admiral Sir James, which was nice because, of course, his father was at Dunkirk commanding uh, HMS Havant, one of the destroyers that was sunk, and uh, he was a great support. He's been uh, very keen to do what he could. And hopefully, uh, because we've been able to include an awful lot of photographs of the book, uh, which we haven't really been able to do in previous volumes, let's hope it's the best one so far. Mm. Yeah, well, I, I definitely enjoyed reading it. So, um, yeah, and it is available on Amazon if anybody else would like to pick it up and have a read. So let's jump in then. So let's talk about um, Second World War before up dynamo um the german invasion of holland and belgium also you know churchill would recently become prime minister what sort of state was the government in at that time it wasn't doing very well yes the prime minister was uh, neville chamberlain and the foreign secretary was viscount halifax the two archipizes of the 30s and parliament had lost confidence in them the nation really had lost confidence in them though I don't think they accepted it particularly. And by the time uh, May arrived, we were fighting in uh, Norway, and obviously it was going very badly. Mm. British, French and Polish troops were gradually being pushed further and further north in Norway. Although the Norwegians and the British had several successes on the naval front, it was obvious that we were not going to stay there and we'd be kicked out. And that really was the final straw. And there was uh, a debate in Parliament when even the Conservatives turned on Chamberlain. And um, I think it was Leo Amory who uh, quoted Cromwell. And he said, uh, as Cromwell said to the long Parliament, you have sat here too long for any good that you have been doing. Depart, I say, and let us have done with you. In the name of God, go. Now, that's pretty hard stuff from a fellow Conservative. And the Labour Party refused to serve in a cross-party national government that Chamberlain was part of. Halifax declined to stand as expected to be his successor. Um, he says he couldn't manage government business from the laws. But others think that perhaps he was biding his time mm. to head a government that later would make peace with Hitler. But you have to make your own views about that. But because of that, there was nobody else except Churchill, who everybody thought of to be the warmonger. Mm. So the king asked Churchill to form a government. And he did so. He kept Chamberlain in the government. Uh, deputy, really, as he had a ministerial role as such, but he was very loyal to Churchill, surprisingly, unlike Viscount Halifax, but um, of course Chamberlain's cancer killed him in November 1914, and then Churchill got rid of uh, Halifax, sent him to Washington as our ambassador, and he actually did very well there. So having made that famous speech, the first of his, oh, heartfelt speeches when he said I have nothing to offer 
but blood, toil, tears and sweat. That appealed not to Parliament, they didn't really go much on that, but it appealed to the press and appealed to the public. Mm. And it became a bit of a rallying point, really. So he sorted out the political problems, if you like. But that was only a small part of the trouble we had at that time. Because, of course, on the day he became Prime Minister, the 10th of May, phony war stopped and Germany invaded Holland and Belgium and attacked France. Holland and Belgium, of course, were neutral. Mm. So uh, they weren't terribly chuffed by that. Um, they both fought well, but um, they were overwhelmed. And so the battle really was for France. And when you say overwhelmed, was it a flanking that Germany did? Well, it was almost the same as the, uh, the First World War. They swung round mm. in a hook through Holland and Belgium to take France from the north. So the French main army and the British supporting expeditionary force. And really, you have to remember that the French army, even on the front that extended from the Channel to Switzerland, it was 2.2 million men, 94 divisions. It was a huge army. Mm. Our little BEF was 390,000 strong, and 150,000 of them were second-line support troops. So... BEF was a very small part of the defences. Um, the Belgians, they had 600,000. They were almost twice the size of BEF. We were just stuck between the Belgians and the French, and gradually the Germans were pushing down from the north and pushing the Allies back, which is exactly what happened in the First World War, except suddenly, out of the blue, the Panzer Column attacked through the Ardennes, which was thought impossible. It was thought impossible to get armour through the woods of the Ardennes. But they managed it, and that is what destroyed the defence for France, as they came in behind, mm. cut through northern France. It was Eric von Manstein, General von Manstein, who subsequently became what they called Hitler's fireman on the Eastern Front. He was a very talented Prussian general, um, he devised what they called the Sickelschnitt, the sickle cut. So an oblique cut straight through to the channel. And they made it through in 12 days. Wow. I, um, I've watched, a, just to go off Peter for a minute, I've watched a couple of documentaries on this recently, obviously, in preparation for talking to you. And there was one story that I saw um, that was that um, obviously the guy that was there at the time spoke about. And it was when the the tanks were coming through, obviously there had troops backing them up as well, coming in behind them. Um, and they had a small contingency which, were, which instantly surrendered because um, there was no way that they could overpower that size of the SS army. So as they surrendered, the um, Germans took, uh, took them and marched, started marching them across um, a field towards a large barn. And when they got into the barn, him and his commander were the last two to go in the barn. And um, the SS threw a grenade into the barn. I don't know if you've heard this story as well. And as everyone got down, he and his commander ran into a nearby lake and hid under the water. But one of the SS soldiers saw them um, and came after them and shot the commander 
and shot at him and he thought that he'd killed him because he went under the water but the bullet actually ricocheted off of a tree and hit him in the back of the neck and he survived have you heard that one yes i have there were yeah. there were several massacres if you want to use an emoji expression mm. um there was the norfolk regiment about a hundred soldiers of the norfolk regiment i think it was at wormhole that um they were herded into a a barn. They, they were part of the rear guard, part of the BS rear guard. Um, they ran out of ammunition and they surrendered to, unfortunately for them, uh, an SS unit, the Totenkopf Deathshead Division. And uh, they were herded into a barn and machine guns. Um, two of them survived. Uh, they laid quietly, playing dead under the bodies of their dead comrades until the SS had gone and then they crawled out and both of them were quite badly wounded by which time ordinary Wehrmacht troops had arrived and they surrendered to the ordinary German troops who looked after them gave them treatment they were taken prisoner one of them lost his leg and he was repatriated the other guy he stayed a prisoner until the end of the war and they both testified at a war crimes trial that ended up in the uh, um, unit commander of the SS being hanged in 1948. Wow. But a lot of these incidents, shall we call them to be tactful, um, they were never followed through because there were no witnesses. Yeah. It was just lucky that these two guys had the presence of mind to uh, keep storm. Yeah, so lucky. I mean, like so many weren't. So they were part of the part of the British rear guard. Mm. But um, the Germans, as I say, they reached the SS, not the SS, the Panzer Division. They mm. reached the coast near Aberdeen in about twelve days. Um, everybody was shaken. Churchill kept saying that they'll have to stop soon, but of course they didn't. Mm. One of the reasons they didn't was that they were all officially issued with uh, pervitin. Pervitin was uh, a methamphetamine. And they were issued with it quite officially to obviate the need for sleep so they could keep going. Wow. And of course now methamphetamine is a highly legal substance, highly dangerous substance. But the Germans used it fairly widely throughout the war. And that's how they kept going so long. Yeah. But of course, it was almost that the machinery gave up before they did. Yeah. So being so outnumbered and obviously, you know, not taking any narcotics, the BEF, you know, did they ever stand a chance? Did they did they have the right equipment for this kind of fight? Did they go yeah, trained? I mean, the equipment they had, bearing in mind there were only 10 divisions, mm. and five of those were territorial, um, they were well equipped, except we didn't have enough um anti-tank guns and the ones we had were a bit light uh, they were equipped with a horrible thing called the boys rifle which was uh, an anti-tank rifle um, it fired a solid slug 0.5 caliber slug that was supposed to go through uh, german armor it did the, the lighter stuff but uh, later in the war it was pretty useless it also if you didn't fire it very carefully it dislocates your shoulder as well which doesn't help puts no mm. confidence in the user. So with this, British were short of anti-tank guns. Our tanks, apart from the 
Aunt Two Matilda were pretty feeble. And nobody ever has enough tanks, except, of course, the French. The French had masses of tanks, and their tanks were very good. But, unfortunately, the Germans gave everybody lessons in how to use them. French had never, apart from one obscure colonel who was promoted in 1940 by the name of Charles de Gaulle, oh. who, who was the only guy on their side in the French army who appreciated how armour should be used, but he was too junior to influence anyone. His unit, actually, was the only unit that um, counterattacked successfully, but in a very small. But, say, the Germans reached the, uh, reached the Channel in about 12 days. The French were pulling back. The, the French really, although they had this huge army, their confidence had been shaken hugely. Prime Minister Renault uh, phoned Churchill and said, they have broken through, our counterattack has failed, we may not be able to continue. And that was that was about two days after. So they they saw signs of Franco-Prussian war, if you like, when they were uh, they were quite soundly defeated. And of course they'd lost so many casualties in the First World War, nobody wanted to uh, carry that through again. Mm. So the so, lead. Sorry, go on. No, no, carry on. I was just going to say. So, so the lead up to the twenty sixth of May. What what was going on? The British were on on land, not not naval side. Mm. On land, the the French and the Belgians and the British were pulling back all the time. But of course, they couldn't pull back southwards because the, the Germans were there, so they could only pull back westwards, and Nobody was really quite sure what was going to happen. Um, Admiral Ramsey, who was Vice Admiral Dover, he was convinced that um, the only the only way that the uh, British could go would be out out and across the Channel. Um, they tried to keep Boulogne and um, Calais open, so they had three ports as well as Dunkirk. But the French hadn't really fortified either. We threw troops into both, um, too little too late. Um, a lot of troops had pulled back into Boulogne, including uh, the Auxiliary Military Pioneer Corps, which became the Royal Pioneer Corps eventually. But they were not trained in soldiering because they were laborers and they were not even properly armed. They didn't have much in the way of small arms, but they pulled back into Boulogne um there's a I'd say a nice story it's <laughs> there is a story about them uh, even though they had few arms there was a company of them who had been recruited from the toughest areas of glasgow and these chaps <laughs> had joined because they had no work and they joined because they got a square meal and get some pay and uh, they were being badly cut up by a, a German machine gun nest. And one of these Glaswegians said to uh, one of the English, British officers who was commanding them, uh, we'll sort them out. So he said, but you know, you've got no weaponry. He said, don't worry about it. And they were all, they all carried a large cutthroat phaser. Yeah. And they stormed this position and dealt with the uh, German machine gunners 
with Glaswegian cutthroat raiders. Wow. Uh, afterwards, when this officer went to look, it looked a bit like an abattoir. So I said, well, these are the little aside that you can't ever really put into a, an introduction. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yes, Boulogne, um, Ramsey sent across all the destroyers available and pulled the troops out as best they could. Um, it ended up with the German armour coming in and the destroyers engaging them over open sites at point blank range. Now, 4.7-inch naval guns, quite a good anti-tank weapon. Mm. And it dealt with them, the destroyers dealt with them fairly, fairly short shrift. Um, and they got out all except 800 of the uh, British troops. The, the last destroyer in um, went in the middle of the night and it brought out 1,400 troops together with um, Polish refugees and a lot of Jewish civilians from Boulogne. Yeah. And it was so top heavy that on the way back to Dover, they couldn't put on any more than five degrees of hell for fear that she should overbalance. Wow. So but they got back. Yeah. So that Boulogne had to be evacuated. Um, Calais, we tried to hold Calais. They put uh, four battalions into Calais, but it wasn't enough. Um, the French had said they would not surrender Calais, although eventually they did. But Brigadier Nicholson, who commanded there, having been told his troops would come out, was then told they wouldn't. He had to hold Calais as long as possible. Mm -hmm. The reason for that was that the Panzer Division that was aiming for Dunkirk had first to get through Calais was told to take Calais and then take Dunkirk. So to enable the bulk of the BEF to get into Dunkirk, they had to hold Calais and delay the second panzer as long as possible. And they fought as oh, fought bitterly. Mm. The Germans tried twice to get them to surrender. And he said, no, if you want Calais, you'll fight for it. Oh, my God. Yeah, not many survived. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, a few of them did. He died in a prison camp in 1944. But, um, excuse me, <coughs> that dogged defence um, held them up for long enough with a few other delays mm. to uh, enable the BEF to pull into Dunkirk. So what sort of date are we talking now then when they were trying to get through Calais? That's, I think, I can tell you actually, I think it was about the, uh, the 24th. It wasn't long. They, it was all breakneck stuff. The, yeah. Um, it happened so quickly. Um, let's have a look. The yeah, 22nd was Boulogne, and the 24th, 24th of May, um, Nicholson was told that he would have to stand. And he stood for another, it was all of that day and the, the following day, and they had to surrender on uh, the 26th. Mm. And the French surrendered the rest. Yeah. Very tiny delay was very helpful. Yeah. And so what? The counterattack at Arras um, delayed the pandas long enough. Yeah. 
And so while this is going on... Naval history, is it? It's military history. Well, yeah, it's a bit of both. It's a bit of both. Um, So while this is going on, then Ramsey's in in Dover, creating the the plan. I mean, what must have it been like in there? What was going... You know. Well, he was convinced. He was convinced a fortnight before that yeah. um, he would have to pull out the BEF. And the Admiralty had already, at that time, they asked owners of self-propelled boats between 30 and 100 feet to declare them to the Admiralty for, quote, general naval purposes, unquote, because, of course, they couldn't really release why. So that was already going on. And then as uh, that week occurred, they um, sent officers around all the uh, coastal ports and the uh, Thames, Thames side anchorages to find moorings, to find boats that they could use. So they were gradually putting together small craft because Ramsey knew that as soon as the Luftwaffe targeted Dunkirk, Dunkirk Harbour wouldn't be usable, they'd smash it to bits. Mm. Uh, so they'd have to use beaches, and the beaches, I don't know if you know Dunkirk, but the beaches, um, there's a mile and a half of sand on the bottom of them, and that is completely covered at high tide, but it's terribly shallow. Mm. And you can't get anything more than a very small boat in, and to try and evacuate troops with your own ships boats is really a waste of effort there's not enough of them mm. and what did the um, british public think was going on at this time then because they're you know we're saying we need these boats for general naval purpose did the british public think that we were winning did they know how bad the situation was it became quickly known i think that um, the army was coming back and they mm. would they would um have to play their part. A lot of the skippers, owners and skippers of the bigger boats, the, the sort of um, motor cruisers and that sort of thing, they went across, they were signed on for uh, a month's naval service. Now, whether that was to stop them being shot as um, spies, I don't know, but they were signed on for non-military service and they took their boats over. Um, one of them who went across was um, Lightoller, who was the senior surviving officer of the Titanic. He wow. he was 66. He's, yeah. he's long retired by then. And he said, well, you're having my boat, you're having me. <laughs> and he took you know, took the Sundowner over. Yeah. And she was, I think she was licensed to carry 21 people. Not that he ever did it for trips, but that was the sort of board of trade certificate. He could carry 25. Uh, he brought back 127. Wow. In one trip. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me, I was having um so he and a lot of other similar people uh, took their own boats across. Mm. But as the evacuation got underway, the um smaller boats were required. So they stripped all the lifeboats off merchantmen in London docks and the uh, naval vessels that were in refit in Portsmouth and Chatham. They had all their boats stripped off and they lashed them together in rafts and towed them across. When they got to uh, Dunkirk beaches, usually under the charge of a junior naval rating, they were lucky to be a leading seaman, 
Mm. Um, they take charge of a boat and they would go inshore, pick up the troops, take them out mm. to a larger vessel, be it a minesweeper or a destroyer or a paddle steamer or whatever was available, and then go back for some more. So it was a, uh, a ferry service from the beach out as far as the rescue ships. Because the rescue ships were uh, a mixture of, as I say, whatever they could get a, get a hold of. Um, they used a lot of the previously requisitioned paddle steamers and coastal excursion vessels that the Navy had taken up from trade at the beginning of the war to use as um, paddle mine sweepers and patrol vessels, auxiliary anti-aircraft ships, that sort of thing. They were all sent across. But they used a lot of um, channel packets, the Channel Island packets, Isle of Man packets were brought around. And uh, before the docks and the keys in Dunkirk uh, Harbour were destroyed or blocked by wrecks, the um, senior naval officer ashore tried to see if one of these vessels could berth what eventually became known as the East Pier. But it was effectively just a big water. If anybody's seen the uh, 2017 movie of Dunkirk, that uh, it, it features quite well there. You get quite a good idea of what this breakwater was. It was a, a rock-built three-quarter mile um, breakwater with a wooden causeway over the top. Mm. And uh, the master, um, or the queen of the channel, was asked to see if he could berth alongside this. And he could, and he took 900 troops off, and that was the first ship. And that was how most of the troops were brought back from the East Pier. And a lot came off the beaches, but far more came off the East Pier in destroyers and in these um, what we called personnel vessels, mm. which were ferries, excursion ships, channel packets. All of them were sunk. In fact, the Queen of the Channel was sunk on her way back because uh, the Stukas were very active. But uh, one of the shall we say, misconceptions, myths of Dunkirk, is that the whole army was brought back by the little ships from the beaches. Now, they did play a, play a very important part, but by far the majority of the troops came off the East Pier. And with, and with that, um, so we've got the Navy involved as well. What were the RAF doing? How were they supporting this evacuation? Well, that's another one of the the myths of Dunkirk, people today still say, where was the RAF at Dunkirk? <laughs> and uh, at the time, I gather, from watching the sort of documentaries that you've seen, that um, there were punch-ups in the street from uh, chaps who'd got back from Dunkirk and said, where the blanking were you? And in fact, they were there. They, they, uh, they were inland. They were all the troops could see were being strafed by these German aircraft and bombed as they came across. But the number that didn't get through were far more because the Spitfires, which were committed for the first time, uh, Germans were quite surprised when the Spitfires appeared. They'd been fighting hurricanes, which weren't quite as nimble, but they were intercepting the German aircraft five, ten miles inland, quite out of sight of the beaches. 
So they were there, mm. um, just that the troops couldn't see them. Uh, right until the end, right at the end, uh, on the 3rd and the 4th and the 5th of June, they were actually patrolling over the beaches and over the channel. But, and you uh, and you mentioned before as well, I just want to talk about this, impo this important delay. Um, because on the 25th of May, just before this all started, the German High Command ordered a halt of German troops. We, we, you mentioned that they, you know, they'd been taking methamphetamine to keep them going. Why? Why did he halt them? Right now, there's a there's an awful lot that's been written about that. You can pay your money and take your choice. My personal opinion is that it started after the. Um, 21st, 22nd of May, when the British organised a counter-attack at Arras, uh, when a hodgepodge mixed force of British armour and infantry attacked Rommel's 7th Panzer Division, caught it in the flank. Now, bearing in mind that the Panzer Divisions were just vehicles, they had no troops, had no infantry with them, the infantry was following. The British force hit the 7th Panzer in the flank and actually caused a lot of damage and caused an awful lot of panic. One of the, one of the units that panicked was the uh, Death's Head, SS Totenkopf, and it is thought that perhaps their massacre of the British troops later was because of their anger that they had broken under fire. But that hit some Panzer hard. Um, they'd have done an awful lot more damage if Rommel himself hadn't have uh, put himself in personal danger. He took charge at the front. He was missed by six inches by a British bullet. He used the attached 88mm anti-aircraft guns as anti-tank guns for the first time and prove how effective they were. Mm. It stopped the British attack, but that had done its job because um, it, I not say panicked, but it shook the German high command so much that they ordered the uh, Panzer divisions to halt until the infantry had caught up to protect their flanks mm -hmm. because there's nothing so vulnerable as a tank without infantry, because another infantryman can go right alongside if he's not seen. So that is the reason, in my view, that the order was given. Now, Hitler confirmed that. Um, not only did he confirm that halt, which initially was 24 hours, he not only confirmed it, but he said, no, we'll make it three days which um, was quite a lot. And that really, really did make the difference. There are other views. The, um, it was said that the land around Dunkirk was waterlogged. It had been mm -hmm. raining for days. There are an awful lot of canals and waterways around there, which makes it really far less suitable for tanks than open country. Um, others said that Hitler was fed up with these hands of generals charging on, doing their own thing, 
well, he sat back and waited to hear what they were up to. Um, he wanted to stamp his authority on the on his own generals, if you like. Mm. You'll do what I say. You'll not do what you want. Um, there was also the thought that he wanted to preserve the Panzers for the later battles, um, particularly taking um, Paris. That was obviously that was a great draw for Hitler. He wanted to take Paris. Others have uh, suggested that he never really expected war to start as early as it did. Um, he was going to wait until about 1944 before he started um, war against Britain. He thought he'd defeat France, perhaps, but not Britain. Mm. Um, so others have said that, uh, oh, well, if I let them take their army out, then they'll be more uh, open to negotiation. I don't believe that. I don't think that's, that's generally these days not thought of. As the real reason. My view is that it was the uh, the hit on the Seventh Panzer Division that shook them so much. They didn't see there were very few reserves mm. in the German army, and they couldn't afford to risk them. So you know, rather waste three days than uh, waste the Panzer divisions. But afterwards, um, when the army had got home, the BF had got home. Apparently, Hitler said in an unguarded moment to uh, uh, General von Kleist, who was the overall panzer commander, that perhaps it might have been an error to have halted, perhaps I <laughs> Which is most unlike it, though. Yeah. Of course, he, uh, he had to appear perfect in every way all the time. Yeah. But that's, that's, that's the, the uh, sort of spread of views as to why they halted. But there's all sorts of wonderful conspiracy theories that have been peddled over the years. But they're far more entertaining than the television than the proof, right? Yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> I mean, you put, yeah, you're you're right. It's probably the first one. So, although I would definitely believe that um, Hitler just wanted to stamp his authority. I mean, that's believable as well. So, who knows? Yeah, I think that was the other the, the the final reason really, I think, was because Goering was leaning on Hitler fairly hard because Goering still had a lot of influence on Hitler at that time. And because of all these uh, risks that Hitler was uh, concerned about to his beloved Panzers, Goering said, well, you know, let my Luftwaffe destroy the BEF. I can do it from the air with no risk. So Hitler said, okay. Now, whether he halted them because of that, or whether having halted them, he then said to Goering, okay, crack on. Nobody will ever know, but that's another point. Mm. Because of course, Goering had the uh, had this optimism that his Luftwaffe could do everything, could do anything. Um, hadn't fought the Battle of Britain then, had they? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, yeah, I'll let our listeners decide what they think um, the reason was for that. So, so go, going back then, we, we, you know, we've already briefly discussed um, 
the evacuation. So the order was given on the 26th for the evacuations to start and it was about 330,000 British and a mixture of British and French troops yeah. that were that were evacuated. How many ships in total um, were involved, do you know? Well, we have. Now, that, that's a piece of information I haven't got. I know there were about 800 little ships. Mm. Um, there were 39 destroyers. I haven't got the figures. It took me in the line for mm. the, um, the merchant vessels yeah. involved or the, um, if you like, naval auxiliaries. The, um, the casualties they took were quite heavy, uh, were very heavy, in fact, because it started off, of course, with all the ships that went across, except for the destroyers and the naval vessels, they went across carrying loads of water in two-gallon cans, because one of the first casualties of the uh, bombing had been the Dunkirk waterworks. Mm. So all these troops flooding into Dunkirk had no water to drink. Um, so there, there are photos of Thames barges, you know, the old sailing barges, mm. still a few being preserved. They sent quite a few of those across because of their shallow draft, packed with these tins of water so they could run right up on the beach and just be there so that the troops could take water off. Wow. Um, a lot of them were left there. Yeah. Abandoned because they couldn't get them off again. Um, but when the, when the evacuation started, the intention, the hope, if you like, on the British side was that we might get as many as 45,000 troops back. If we were really lucky, yeah. you might get 45,000 troops back in the two days that they envisaged before Dunkirk would be occupied. Mm. And obviously that was exceeded. The, the defence, the, the perimeter held that much longer. Um, one of the reasons it held was, as I say, it was the Belgians and the British and the French in that order from left to right. On the 28th of May, the King of the Belgians, who rashly had decided to take command in the field, but he wasn't really up to it, despite the instructions of his government, ordered his army to surrender. Mm. And he surrendered with them uh, to the intense annoyance of the Belgian government, who escaped to England afterwards. Um, that would, of course, have left this great big gap on the left flank of the British. Now, it's one of these bits of luck you get in war. Um, one of the units was the Middlesex Regiment, was very active, and they sent out a very aggressive patrol into uh, no man's land, I suppose, and this patrol ambushed a German start car. And uh, the colonel in the back was last seen legging it as fast as he could, jumping over hedges to get away, and he did so, but he left his briefcase behind. And in the briefcase was a German top-secret document. And in this, it specified how they would outflank the BEF by smashing through the Belgian army and taking the British from the rear. And of course, they didn't even have to smash through the Belgians by that time because the Belgians had surrendered. Mm. But fortunately, this report, this paper, with a translation, was given to the commander of two corps, 
which was Lieutenant General Alan Brooke, who subsequently became Field Marshal Lord Alan Brooke, the uh, Chief of the Imperial General Staff later in the war. But he realised the significance of this, took it straight to Lord Gort, who commanded the BEF, who was just about to connect two British divisions to a counterattack. And he said, we've got to bung this hole up. So that he made him, you know, convinced Lord Gort to cancel the counterattack and move these two British divisions to the north. And they bung the hole up just in time. Mm. And that managed to preserve the defence of the perimeter. Yeah. Wow. So lucky. Bit of luck. Yeah. War turns on luck, doesn't it, sometimes? Well, yeah, definitely. Good or bad. Mm. Good for us, not for... Yeah. So how would they? How did they prepare to evacuate on the beach then? Did I mean, I've seen so many photographs and, and videos of them in just mass lines along the beach. What was the, you know, it was organised in, over in Dover. Well, how was it organised over in Dunkirk on the beach? They had the senior naval officer, Dunkirk, who was a captain RN. He was sent across, subsequently commanded the uh, battle cruiser Repulse. And she was sunk for the Japanese. He oh, survived right. the war, came out, however. Um, he organised the evacuation in two parts, if you like. There was the evacuation from the East Pier, and then there was the evacuation from the beaches. The, the troops themselves, it was a bit of self help. Several people had a brilliant idea at the same time that they couldn't reach the ships because of the shallow water. So at extreme low tide, um, they decided all these army lorries, which were uh, no longer required, they were parked in fields or along the Esplanade in uh, Dunkirk, they drove them down to the um, sea at low tide, to the tide line, and then they stacked them side by side all the way back to the high tide line, lashed them together, shot their tyres out, weighted them down with sandbags, planked them over where they could to make these makeshift jetties. Mm. And there were 10 of those. So that meant that some of the smaller ships could go alongside these ramshackle jetties and take the chaps aboard far more easily than on the beaches. So that was something they did. Until they were called forward, and in which case some of the chaps were eventually up to their necks in water as the tide came in, um, they really sheltered amongst the dunes, um, which was a fortunate thing to do because the Stukas, of course, they used to come down in these power dives carrying these heavy bombs. The bombs used to plunge straight into this soft sand and go down a hell of a distance before they would detonate, which stifled the explosions. Mm which made this, the bombing less effective than it would have been had they been in open fields or in the town. Um, obviously, there were still a lot of casualties, and the, the poor guys who were uh, lined up waiting to go aboard the rescue vessels, they, were, they suffered badly from the machine gun and cannon fire from the, uh, the Strafe and the Luftwaffe aircraft as they came across. As to be said, the... Uh, the fleet air arm was at Dunkirk, though not many people realise it. Um, not in vast numbers, but they used um, 
swordfish and albacore biplanes to bomb the advancing German troops, would you believe? Wow. Um, <laughs> and skewer, skewer dive bombers, um, which were obsolescent, but still very effective. Mm. They uh, dive bombed German troops. So the fleet air arm, acting under coastal command, RAF coastal command instructions, they did their bit as well. Yeah, so it seems like the whole of the military was involved then to play, to play their part for this. Mm. And I mean, and it was, and it was a, a successful evacuation. Yes, it was. I mean, Churchill made the famous announcement that uh, we mustn't give this the uh, what was his uh, his expression? The, uh, we must be careful not to assign to this deliverance the attributes of a victory. Wars are not won by evacuations. Nevertheless, mm. it was it was a victory. It was a victory for the Royal Navy, who achieved what it set out to do in the teeth of opposition. Um, so yes, you can say it was a victory because we managed to get 198,000 British troops and 140,000 French troops out. Albeit that an awful lot of the French troops went within the week straight back to France and subsequently surrendered. But nevertheless, the um, operation of Dunkirk was a success beyond anything anybody ever expected. Um, the perimeter was defended jointly right until the last minute by the British and the French. Um, eventually, with a day to go, we pulled out the last of the British troops because the French said the perimeter contracted so much we can defend what's left. Mm. Um, our intention, of course, was to save the main British field army. That's what we had to do. Uh, the French intentions were slightly different. Originally, they intended to maintain the Dunkirk beachhead, if you like, the enclave, as um, a thorn in the side of the Germans, but that quickly became became apparent that wasn't practical. Um, and eventually, the French sorted out their evacuation plans, and we agreed because we had most of the ships. We agreed that the British and the French troops would be evacuated 50-50. I think uh, Churchill is infamous for his appalling French. He gave this emotional undertaking that uh, the British and the French will lead Dunkirk arm in arm. It wasn't quite like that, but it was more important for us to get the British field army back because it was the only one we had. Mm. The only other army was. 30,000 men in Egypt. So I had, had it, obviously thinking how horrific that would have been had that not been successful, how different the world, our world could be if we didn't get the, the army back. How would yes, things have I, changed? I think it would have, it would have changed the course of history. Yeah. Because if we had lost the main British field army, Albeit that we lost all their equipment, the equipment can be fairly quickly replaced. Um, it would have been a military defeat that would have shaken the morale of the country 
we would have had no army in place to defend the country. In my view, you always have to say that, don't you? Because people have different ideas. Mm. It would have meant that people like like um, Halifax, who was a defeatist, he would have probably probably taken over from Churchill and perhaps negotiated a peace, an unfavourable peace on Hitler's terms. We'd have probably kept the fleet and kept the colonies, but Hitler can't be trusted. He would have attacked us again within two years, I suspect, and we could well have been defeated. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. The Americans would never have come in, they'd have fought Japan, and the world would look a very different place. Yeah, it really would. I mean, a 10-day operation that basically shaped the future for 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 the nation. Well, yes, it did, because, as I say, if we had lost the main field army, small though it was by European standards, because, of course, we've always been a maritime power, the French and the Germans have always been, and to a lesser extent the other European powers, have always been continental powers. Mm. relying on a standing army. We never have. We've always relied on the Royal Navy to defend us. Um, we only had that little field army, as I say, ten divisions, and five of them were territorials. Um, if we had lost all those, um, it would have enfeebled the country, uh, militarily and and morally, really. Um, psychologically might be a better way of putting it. And hmm. um, would we then have had the national gumption to stand up to it? Hmm. I don't think so. I may be wrong. Stand up to it. Hmm. And then obviously we went on to win, win the war some years later. So maybe, you know, at that point, Churchill was wrong. Some wars are won by evacuation. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he was, he was focusing on the moment. Though, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, it was sort of, don't sit back and uh, feel pleased with yourself. We've got a long way to go. Yeah, which, which they definitely was, did. That's what he was saying. Really. Yeah. But, of course, um, Dunkirk wasn't the end by any means. Mm. Because having achieved that, it was all called off on the 4th. The 5th, they were collecting stragglers. Um, that was the end of Operation Dynamo. Yeah. But what it wasn't the end of was British military involvement in France because there were still 140,000 British troops in France to the south of the German Sickelschnitt cut-through. And we were initially going to put together the second BEF. Lord Gort was brought home and quietly parked. And... Uh, Lieutenant General Alan Brooke, who commanded two corps, he was brought back um, to be knighted, promoted, given command of 2nd BEF and sent back to France within a week. Wow. Um, but he had no illusions at all. And he was always a man who was um, outspoken, bluntly outspoken. And he used to tell the war office every five minutes that they're on the hiding to nothing. He would obey his orders and go back, but it was all to no avail. 
And eventually he had a telephone call from France with Churchill telling him, as I say, pretty bluntly, the French army is all but dead. We have no ally to fight with. We must not lose any more soldiers. Mm. So he convinced them, convinced Churchill and the War Office that the 140,000 troops that remained in France needed to be evacuated. So there were two operations, cycle and aerial, that got them out of the ports to the west and south. Um, the failure was the 51st Highland Division that couldn't be got out. They were going to pull them out of Le Havre, but Rommel cut them off. We got 4,000 men out of Le Havre, but the rest of the 8,000, they surrendered at saint Valery because um, although they were still, they still had some fighting spirit, obviously being Highlanders, <laughs> um, they ran out of ammunition and then the French surrendered around them. So um, they, 8,000 for the 51st Highland surrendered, but all the troops and all the rest of the uh, major ports were gradually pulled out, Saint-Nazaire, Cherbourg, and Brest, um, left a lot of equipment behind, but they got the troops out. Um, it's famous for a, a tragic loss, and that was the worst maritime disaster in British history. And that was the uh, Cunard Liner Lancastria that was evacuating civilians and troops from Saint-Nazaire, and she was bombed and sunk. And because so many people were coming aboard, the um, tally had got lost. They didn't know how many were aboard. And the master said, when there were 6,500 aboard, enough, no more. And that afternoon, she was bombed and sunk. She sank in 20 minutes. God. And... 3,000 and something were saved, but there have been people who say 11,000 died. Others have said 3,000. It was between four and five. It's uh, educated guesses. But yeah. that was the worst maritime disaster in British military history. Wow. British history, not military yeah. history, British maritime history, mm. which is awful. We worked our way down, if you like, from um, La Havre all the way down to the Basque country, where there was increasingly fewer troops the further south you went. Incidentally, one of the uh, units that was evacuated was the 1st Canadian Division. They had just arrived. They didn't even disembark. They just turned around and went back again. Mm. Um, but further south, there were 25,000 Poles um, who were still fighting, <coughs> excuse me, even though their own country had been invaded by the Germans and the Russians, split between the two of them. Mm. They sent them out of their army to France to continue fighting. And they were determined they weren't going to surrender. And they fought their way down France. And eventually they ended up about as far south as you can get at um, Saint-Jean-de-Luce, and we brought them out. Wow. So, by the end of that, um, that exercise, 211,000 were evacuated 
from other ports. Yeah. Uh, no, I've got some funny, I've got the figures in front of me. 140,000 British, 25,000 Polish, 17,000 French who wanted to fight on, and 5,000 Czechs, which included, I mean, the Poles and Czechs included not only soldiers, but a lot of uh, Air Force personnel. Mm, okay. Who, of course, contributed hugely to the Battle of Britain. Mm. Wow. The two top scoring squadrons in the RAF and the Battle of Britain were both Polish. Excuse me, I'm croaking. I need a drink. <laughs> Fascinating. But it is only apple squash. Yes, of course. <laughs> it's five o'clock somewhere, though. <laughs> I mean Mike, Mike this has just been this has just been fascinating and I think we could we could you could definitely um you know t tell me about this for days but I'm conscious that I've taken up quite a lot of your time I just no, have I don't one... want to be boring there's, no there's absolutely not nothing more boring than somebody just talking at you no it's been fascinating I'm just wondering so what's next for you then are there any more books on the horizon or well before Dunkirk we did um, confronting Italy, mm -hmm. which were the battle, surface battles of the, the 1940. That one came out um, previous year. The one we're working on now is it's slightly different. We've gone along a different tack. There are two battle summaries, because all these books are based on these 52 different battle summaries, which form part of the Naval Staff history. The next one is... Uh, Pacific strategy, because there were two, and they were called them battle summaries, but there were two naval staff histories produced on the Pacific strategy, first half and second half. Um, we're producing those as a combined volume, and the introduction was written by a sub-lieutenant under training at Dartmouth. Oh, wow. Very good it is, too. And a paper... Uh, has been written by two undergraduates from Plymouth University on the, effectively, it's how the Americans, the US Navy, having lost its battle fleet at Pearl Harbor, with all the battleships, if they weren't sunk, they were put out of action for months. The only thing they had left to turn to was the aircraft carrier. So we've entitled the book The Rise of the Aircraft. Oh, excellent. And when, when will this be out? Oh, it'll probably be six months. Okay. Because, um, we, as I say, most of it's been written, but um, the publisher and I are working on getting a lot of photographs. Now, um, there's been a, he, he understands all about it, but there's been a change in copyright law, which means we're now allowed to use a lot of photographs that are now deemed to be quote, in the public domain, unquote. So he and I are going through loads of photographs so that it's going to be not only the book of the strategy, but it's going to be a photograph book of um, carriers and carrier aircraft of the Pacific War and the section for the British Pacific Fleet, just to show we were there. Yeah, yeah. Ah, oh, awesome. Well, I look forward to it. You have to let me know when that one's out so I can read that one too. Yeah, I'll give you an email when it's out. Thank you. All right, Mike. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure um, to talk to you today. Thank you for taking us through that. And as I said to our listeners, if anybody would like to buy uh, Operation Dynamo, it is available on Amazon. Mike, thank you. It's been a pleasure and I hope to speak to you soon. Thank you.